Hi, I'm Michael from Orange County, California. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click Donate. Thank you. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio This week on the Sound of Young America podcast, selections from our program recorded live on stage at San Francisco Sketchfest. The Sketchfest were kind enough to host us for a second time, and it was a pleasure, as always, to appear there. We had a great house at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco with some amazing guests. Let's get down to this stage and my interview with Jello Biafra. My next guest on the program is uh, not only a punk rock legend, but also a Bay Area legend. He's the founder of Alternative Tentacles Records, uh, was the front man of the seminal punk rock group, The Dead Kennedys. For many years, he's been a lecturer and speaker on free speech issues, among many others. Uh, please welcome to the stage Mr. Jello Biafra. Jello, this is a um, this is a San Francisco show. Obviously, we're here in San Francisco. You, I thought it was about farming. <laughs> you're, hey, one of my grandfathers is from Iowa. You, you, know, you are. He left the farm and went to college. You're. You're not a native Californian, so no. why did you come to California? What was it that you wanted? I didn't want to be a farmer. <laughs> In all sincerity, how old were you when you decided that you were getting out of town? Like, was there a point when you said... Um, I think it was about 11. Well, no, we went on a family car trip, and between bickering with my parents and my sister, I got to see San Francisco for the first time, and there was something magic there that just was not available in Boulder, Colorado. And, uh, you know, I, 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 it just kind of was drawn back here. Do you remember anything in particular about it that you, that you really thought was amazing? It was, was kind of everything. The ocean, the hills, and because Boulder is, uh, well, now it's a big, horrible, yuppie town, but it's basically a college town at the edge of the Rocky Mountains outside of Denver at the time by about 20 miles, but that's all filled with malls now. Anyway, um... So I, I, I hadn't really been in big cities very much. My dad took me to Detroit a couple of years early and actually took me through the ghetto because I wanted to see a real slum. And then two weeks later was the Detroit riots, and I thought, aha. When you moved out to California, it was to go to college, right? Initially? Uh, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually the question I, it was, it I was, was going to ask. It was a transition between my hardcore hippie days and my hardcore punk rock days. And so uh, scouted out schools and looked at a few of them. And the finalists were Evergreen State in Washington, which was one real alternative school. And then another one was UC Santa Cruz, because I was, you know, a University of Colorado's in Boulder. I was sick of frat boys. I was sick of grades. I didn't really want to go to school, but there was nothing else for me to do. I was sick of delivering pizzas and stuff. So uh, I, I, I looked at both schools, but then I also, my dad trusted me with a rental car, not knowing how much we 
weed I'd brought with me. <laughs> and uh, I cruised around the whole greater Seattle area by night, which is the best way to see these things, and then did the same for the Bay Area. Thought, you know, Santa Cruz is closer to San Francisco, and I like San Francisco better than Seattle. And, uh, it's a good idea, though, that you brought the weed, Joe, because well, if yeah, there's absolutely. one place where it's tough to get weed, it's evergreen. And if there's two, it's evergreen and UC Santa Cruz. Oh, yeah. Well, as I say, I was transitioning. People who say cannabis is non-addictive are uh, smoking too much weed and in denial. I was even starting to try to quit, and I couldn't for a long time. But anyway, so then I'm driving up Highway 1 after going to UC Santa Cruz, stopped off at Pompon. State Beach, which is the one in the middle where hardly anybody goes to from either Santa Cruz or San Francisco, all alone, foggy night, and I started smoking weed, and there was like, wow, it looks like a great big jellyfish in the sky. The clouds are so cool. I'm going to go to UC Santa Cruz so I can investigate getting into the punk rock scene in San Francisco. Now there's, yeah! So there's this, whole, there's this whole world that you just described of smoking huge amounts of weed, trying to decide between Evergreen and UC Santa Cruz, and then this second world of punk rock that was just then starting to blossom in the United States. But they're very, very different, at least in my imagination. So what was it in your, you know, smoking a lot of weed state that was exciting to you about the punk rock? Well, at first, I, I'd, I'd gotten the first Ramones album. I just found a promo used for a buck the week it came out, and it looked kind of like it might sound like the New York Dolls or the Stooges or more of the heavier music I liked. And I brought it in, and I thought it was really funny at the time because the songs were so short, and the lyrics were all on the depth of uh, beat on the brat, beat on the brat, beat on the brat with a baseball bat. And then there was another one, and they had a lyric sheet, too, just like all them, <laughs> them heavy Dillanoid folks and things. And uh, then the whole song was, now I want to sniff some glue, now I want to have something to do. Over and over, it was like it was so moronic, it was fascinating. It hadn't quite dawned on me that it was so moronic, it was brilliant. So all my friends, we'd come over and listen to weird records and smoke weed. I said, you've got to hear this. And we all thought it was funny, but then we found out, you know, early 77, about March or so, Ramones are going to play in Denver. They're opening for this record company band called Night City at a place called Ebbets Field, which was a showcase for often the worst music ever made. It was the breaking ground and stuff. But here the opening band was the Ramones, and so some of us in the know went down there and filled the front of Ebbets Field. And in the back was the country rock glitterati of all these guys, you know, professional, mature musicians who could all play as good as Jimmy Buffett. And, uh, and tell him. You know, they, they, they had their feathered dues and their neatly trimmed Kenny Loggins beards, corduroy jacket with patches on it. And all the women had 20s dues with flowers in their hair because that's what Joni Mitchell started looking like. They were there to be, they were there, whatever. One chord on Johnny's guitar, and we knew it was going to be a lot louder than we thought, and it was really powerful, really good. I took the Ramones a lot more seriously from then on. Part of the beauty was not only is this so powerful and so good, but it's, they, they deliberately made their show very simple. So, my God, 
anybody can do this. I can do this. I should do this. And on top of it, I kept looking around at the, the Joni Mitchell flower women and their you know, music industry heavyweight dudes or the wannabe cocaine cowboys who were terrified. And I was thinking, yes, yes, yes. But the net result of that one Ramones show of who was lining the front row, what results in that? Dead Kennedys, the Wax Tracks label, Ministry, Al Jorgensen apparently was there too, and none of us knew him at the time, Angst, the independent band that recorded five albums for SST and whatnot, uh, The Nails, who had that hit 88 lines about 44 wim- women and whatnot, all uh, Don Fleming from Gumball and Velvet Monkeys, he was there too. He did stuff in New York and D.C. It just... Handful of people and almost everybody went and did something after that. That was the impact of the Ramones. It's the sound of young America. We're live in San Francisco this week. My guest is the punk rock legend Jello Biafra. My understanding of the birth of the Dead Kennedys involves like a newspaper advertisement. No. No? A myth? Well, it was just a little thing hanging on the on the on the bulletin board. So I want to know, like, records in San Francisco. What did the little thing on the bulletin board say? This is a time when punk rock was still a really new thing, especially in San Francisco in the Bay Area. It was just being born in the Bay Area. What did the What did the sign say? Influences? I think it was just... not the feathered hair guys. <laughs> well, that was obvious. I mean, one of the beauties of moving out here instead of New York was there was a very clear division of what was punk and what was not and kind of everybody in the scene knew each other supported each other peer pressure the opposite is is it is now now that punk has gotten really conservative in some quarters where every band had to sound different from every other band plus it was the first few people in and the bands were really special i mean the you know remember to this day you know the avengers the weirdos the dills the screamers uh Negative trends, sleepers, crime, nuns, many more. and But not that many. So it was a scene that was newer and just, you know, just forming. So it was, it was, it was like the chance for me to jump in. There was still this feeling at the time that this was going to be bigger. They were as big as the Beatles and the Stones because it was the freshest thing since the Beatles and the Stones. The Ramones were going to be the new Beatles. Everybody was going to love them, but uh, the music industry thought differently, and for that matter, to some degree, so did the public. And then by the time I finally moved out here, it was... uh, the majors had pulled all their offers from underground punk bands. We're not going to go there after all. If you're power pop and put on the little kissy-ass necktie, then you're okay. Otherwise, to hell with the rest of you. Nuns, offer withdrawn. Screamers, offer withdrawn. Avengers, you're not going to be on Sire after all. Bye! In a way, it was good because it made the music more and more extreme as time went on instead of uh, slowly but surely finding a way to be respectable like what happened in at least the above-ground bands in England. That didn't answer your question, but... No, so I'll... <laughs> oh, you all, you just wanted to know about a sign. I, I, what I really wanted to know is... Let's move past the sign. When, you, when you started this band, when, when this group of people started this band, what did you think it was going to be? What was your goal? There were several different ones. One of them, because I was such a vinyl junkie record collector, um, which saved me from drugs, Tipper Gore. Music doesn't cause drug addiction. It saves you from drugs. I could buy, spend my money on speed, or I could spend it on records. Is so Tipper guess Gore what I here? Did. Anyway, Tipper, say hi. 
Anyway, hi, I'm sure glad your husband's not in the Obama administration yet. If he sticks to global warming, great, but don't ever run for office again. We remember you too well. Plus, you look too good in that beard. The great beard. Oh, I forgot about that. He should have kept growing it, though. That he would be he could, have been, he could have been Fidel Gorstro. <laughs> okay, so we were talking about what your goals and if were. if Tipper had one, too, that would be even better. <laughs> she could dance for the butthole surfers like the bearded lady they had. Okay, so going back to the question, which was... Um, your ideas of what this band was going to be when the scene was this this scene that grew up eventually over the course of the next couple of years was very vibrant and exciting but you started this band before it had blossomed fully so uh, not true it already kind of had on one level and the, a lot of thanks go to Dirk Dirksen who ran Mabuhe Gardens and yeah let's hear it for Dirk and uh he knew enough to make the shows all ages, which was really good because I was 19 when Dead Kennedy started and didn't have to wait to be an adult with feather hair and Kenny Loggins' beard before I could enjoy good music or whatever. And uh, so uh, b being 19 and having been through some serious depression and stuff before I left Boulder... It was almost a suicide mission. I either succeed at this or there's nothing else worth living for. And that was, that was my mentality at the time. But, it would, but I'd also realized from the early Mabuhe shows that seeing a band close up in a small venue where you can see the sweat drip off the guitar strings and you are there was vastly preferable to arena rock. And so the asper childhood aspirations of being an arena rock star were no longer necessary. All you had to do was walk on stage, and I realized that I was a little weirder than a lot of people there and had a little more of a theatrical background, and I could use that and do something different. And musically, it was sort of um, just going over everybody with a fine-tooth comb. What made Jim Morrison great? What made Iggy great? What made these people do something different? What made Hawkwind's music appeal to me? so much in a, in, a, in a way that could translate into punk and I could figure out what to do with Holiday in Cambodia when that riff popped up. Thank you, Hawkwind. And so I was very self-conscious of that and I hadn't written lyrics before so was, you know, there's a lot of really crappy lyrics from that period that never got used and a few that almost did till I rewrote them before we recorded them. And I, I didn't really get over that kind of self-consciousness till my campaign for mayor and 1979 in San Francisco. And of all, aside from all the wonderful trouble that caused, especially for a wicked witch and aspiring Margaret Thatcher by the name of Diane Feinstein, <laughs> if Jello Biafra gets that many, somebody like Jello Biafra gets that many votes, this city is in real trouble. Her press guy said that. She didn't. But uh, anyway, but after, after what happened with that mayor campaign, I thought, wow, nobody in music, big or small, ever did that before. If I never do anything else, my name is in the record books, I'm a free man. I'm me now. You know, I don't have to worry about being, you know, not as cool as Jim Morrison or not as wild as Iggy or not as good a writer as... Uh, well, will shatter, for that matter, a negative trend. So at that point, it, it, it kind of broke a lot of ice. I could just follow wherever my weird brain went. 
More in just a minute on the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Hi, it's me, Jesse. If you're interested in reaching the Sound of Young America's highly literate, intelligent, and awesome audience, you can use the medium of underwriting. Support the Sound of Young America, and we'll thank you by sharing your message with our thousands of listeners, both here on the podcast, on the radio show, and on our website. If you'd like more information about underwriting on the Sound of Young America, drop me a line at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. That's jesse at MaximumFun.org. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Dead Kennedy's frontman and former San Francisco mayoral candidate, the great Jello Biafra. Jello joined me on stage at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco. I, I got the impression that you sort of fell into that mayoral race, that it sort of started as something a lot smaller than it ended up being. Yeah, I had no idea it was gonna it was gonna cause that much trouble, and uh, it was Dirk who kept pushing me. No, no, no! You have no idea what this is gonna do. You've got to keep going. You've got to do this. We'll do this. We'll do this. Come on, come on, we'll do this. And uh, so I went along with it. I mean, earlier, me and my friend John Greenway, who uh, wrote the original lyrics to California Uber Alice back in Boulder, we had toyed with the idea of running for school board on a sabotage <laughs> ticket and. He, in particular, wanted to come out with a mohawk, which was unheard of then, except for Taxi Driver and Travis Bickle, and a tutu and propose free drugs for children. (laughs) And Bowler had a history of people who actually did this. There was a guy who ran for city council. That was my main inspiration for the mayor campaign, was John Davenport. And there is his picture in the paper alongside the other candidates. He's got a pirate suit on with some of his... (laughs) teeth blacked out, saying he'd ban cars from the city limits and these other things. So when I ran for mayor, that was the first idea I had. Okay, John Davenport, ban cars from city limits. It was so, Yeah, it was sort of a whim. Bruce Schlesinger, who went by the name of Ted, our first drummer, had me folded up in the back of his Volkswagen Beetle as we were going down to see Pier Ubu and said, yeah, Biafra, you've got such a big mouth, you should run for president. <laughs> No, no, you should run for mayor. And I thought, wait a minute, maybe I will. So I mouthed off to everybody at the Pier Ubu show that I was running for mayor, and people got immediately excited. And uh, so I thought, oh boy, I need a platform. What was, so the, a lot what of the, was platform, the plank of the platform that you were proudest? It had many well, ridiculous Well, it was the second plank, one that planks. came to mind after banning cars. And I was writing this out with a felt-tip pen on a napkin at a table right about there while Pier Ubu were there. And uh, that was how I danced the night away to Pier Ubu. Anyway, writing out my platform. The second one just popped into my head. Why aren't police officers elected? Why not? Make police run for office every four years voted on by the areas they patrol, which would also mean they would have to live there and be part of the neighborhood instead of just hiding out in Nevada over here, Simi Valley, like the LAPD does. And, you know, then people, oh, no, you'll get people unqualified. Well, wrong. I mean, people who've been trained in that, they they can use that as part of their campaign. You know, if you run for coroner, you're probably one of the people who runs a mortuary. 
You have seen a corpse before. If you're running for DA, in all likelihood, you went to law school. So if that you're running for play. insurance commissioner, you want people to know your name so you can run for governor later. <laughs> sure. See how well that's worked for John Garamendi? <laughs> He's going to try again, too. Won't that be fun? Garamendi, Villaraigosa, the mayor of L.A., Jerry Brown, all duking it out with Gavin Newsom. Now, you, you, have, you have a lot of fun, as we can tell here on the stage, gabbing, shall we say. What was it that led <laughs> you to put, to put your spoken word career in, at the forefront of your artistic pursuit? I didn't plan it that way. It just kind of happened. And... Uh, uh, spoken word started when uh, the same guy who got Henry Rollins into doing it and some other folks, Harvey Kubernick in Los Angeles, began calling me up and bugging me and bugging me and bugging me. And when Harvey gets his teeth into something, he does not let go. And eventually, I thought, okay, I'll give it a try. This will be so easy, blah, blah, blah. And then the closer I got to the event, I got more and more, oh, my God, this isn't going to be so easy after. I'm not going to have any electricity behind me. No noise. It's going to be all what, it's going to be words, and they better be good. So a few of them were expanded Dead Kennedy lyrics, but then it kind of evolved into something else. And even from the very first show at UCLA, um, what the audience got into the most was... Uh, Sense of humor, which you are dismissing as gabbing, you condescending hostoid, you. <laughs> and, uh, just jiving you. And, and the buried information I put in. You know, value and shock value, just like my punk stuff. Why I'm glad the space shuttle blew up. But then after people were rolling on the floor laughing, I thought, yeah, but there's a reason for that, because the next one that was scheduled to show go up would have had 46 pounds of plutonium on it, and if that had blown, there would have been enough plutonium blowing around in the Earth's atmosphere. One little speck will kill you. We wouldn't be here if that had happened. And we have several satellites still up there that have got payloads of plutonium on them. This worries me. So I, I wove that into one of my little sick humor pieces and got the point across. But then, after some of the coffee house and college gigs uh, doing readings, the Los Angeles police, at the prodding, or at least inspiration, of Tipper Gore and her anti-music hate campaign that she did in conjunction with Jerry Falwell and Focus on the Family and some other people that she now won't admit to knowing, um, they decided that Dead Kennedy's Frankenchrist album, and specifically me, should be the test case for Tipper's agenda of prosecuting musicians for saying things or using illustrations that she and her Washington society ladies and religious right friends didn't happen to like. So got the word that I'd been charged after the police raided my house and then my attorney friend said, no, 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 you don't understand. CNN is calling. CBS is calling. The city attorney of L.A. announced it at a big news conference. You're Tipper's pigeon. What are you going to do? The answer was obvious. I even having to think about it. Don't take a slap on the wrist. Fight back. 
And luckily, I had a roommate, Suzanne Stefanik, who later edited Macworld, who was living in my house at the time. And she had already been doing some muckraking on Tipper Gore and the Parents Music Resource Center's religious right connections. So I had a fountain of information to spit back at what was really going on here and what the agenda really was. So it took a lot out of me. I got interviewed half to death for months on end about it. But it also meant maybe the only time the straight corporate media ever took what I was saying seriously and let me have some space and all. And you also won. Uh, sort of. It was a hung jury. It wasn't an acquittal. It was a hung jury. And the prosecutor, who looked like Bush's father with a beetle haircut, and has since, uh, yes, and has since uh, apologized for the whole thing. Anyway, um... He promptly demanded a new trial, which he could have gotten. They could have dragged me through it again and again and again until he got a verdict, guilty or innocent. But luckily, the judge at that point said, enough experimenting with the law, case dismissed. But even that was not exactly a victory. Sure, it heaped all kinds of egg on the faces of Tipper Gore and other sheriffs or DAs or politicians who wanted to get musicians busted. And the prosecutor in L.A. had a whole file of other ones they were thinking of going after next, and that derailed that, thankfully. But in the marketplace, it meant, ironically, after the charges were dismissed, all these big chain stores kicked everything with my name, Dead Kennedy's name, Alternative Tentacles' names out of their stores for about 10, 12, 15 years. And it wasn't until Green Day mania suddenly made punk corporate and sellable that they wanted our stuff back in those stores. Even to the point where the very week a new spoken word album came out where I bashed blockbuster video and all the pre-censored movies they were renting and stuff pre-edited as they call it they tried to sue somebody when they said censorship so excuse me pre-edited and uh, the same week that came out blockbuster was begging for dead kennedy's albums for the first and only time well jello we are completely out of time but it was such it was so fantastic to have you thank you so much for being on this show thanks for having me jello biafra The man, the myth, the legend. Jello Biafra was the frontman of the iconic rock and roll group The Dead Kennedys. Since then, he's become a record mogul with his own Alternative Tentacles label. You can find out more about Jello's career since The Dead Kennedys online at alternativetentacles.com. our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself. Interstitial music provided by Dan Wally, our intern Brian Fernandez. This show edited by Nick White. And special thanks go to our engineer, Jim, uh, who also runs, by the way, the Darkroom Theater in San Francisco. If you want to see some comedy or independent theater in the city, Visit darkroomsf.com.
Special thanks also this week, of course, to the San Francisco Sketch Fest, the best comedy festival in the country, um, and just amazing folks, and uh, what a pleasure it always is to appear at the SF Sketch Fest. Make your travel plans for next January. I guess that's about all I need to say. I'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. Bye-bye.